Time for us to check in with what's happening with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. Now, I know we got a lot of information yesterday from that briefing, but I thought, you know what? We should probably take some of this with a grain of salt. Yeah, I found myself, you know, thinking about premature victory laps and how many of them we've taken in the last 20 months and going, oh, lifting the restrictions again. Are we are we getting ahead of ourselves? I hope not, although I do see the UK papers are full of it today. Have you heard of the Delta Plus variant? Oh, why are you doing this? No, well, I haven't. Know, I, <laughs> the theory of evolution is a wonderful thing. You know, uh, we humans are still learning to walk upright and figure out those opposable thumbs, but COVID-19 is evolving at a rapid pace, and there is something that surfaced in the UK called the Delta Plus variant. They're a little worried it may be more communicable. So, yeah, we have the data here. We have the science. Uh, I know there's a lot of businesses in BC that were promised that, you know, when everybody gets vaccinated or we cross the threshold of vaccinations and they started ministering the vaccine passports, that some of the restrictions are going to be relaxed. So the restrictions are being relaxed and fingers crossed, I hope they're on the right track this time. Yeah, me too. Uh, Let's talk about some of the progress that is being made then. We know that uh, cases have kind of leveled off. We're making progress towards getting healthcare workers vaccinated, but we still have quite a few, right, that are not. I I was really struck by the numbers again. So when the rules kicked in for long-term care after Thanksgiving, we were told there were still 2,000 workers in long-term care and assisted living who weren't vaccinated, and they would be going on leave without pay. So now we've got the restrictions for the rest of health care, acute care, continuing care, and all that. And Adrian Dix said yesterday... um, the deadline is October the 26th. The, he estimates 5,500 healthcare workers not vaccinated yet in that category. Um, interesting, you know, the Quebec government had to blink on this. They had a requirement for nurses, healthcare workers, yeah. um, to get vaccinated, and they have such shortages in the system that they've put it off for a month. Dix, yesterday, no sign that uh, the B.C. government is going to blink on this one. Uh, it must be done. You have to get vaccinated. The penalties, he's, he's said it. Leave without pay, possibly termination. Government says it has contingency plans in place. Government doubts that when it comes to the crunch, most health care workers, they doubt, will give up their pay and benefits. I guess we'll see. We will see. I, I thought it was really interesting the way, as you mentioned, Quebec had to blink because there was an awful lot of healthcare workers who were just absolutely refusing. Yeah, uh, you know, again, I uh, marvel that people are able to go all the way through and get training as healthcare workers, in some cases, medical degrees, in some cases, nursing degrees, and uh, continue to disbelieve in the efficacy of vaccines. But there you go. There is some of it out there, and uh, the system is facing a challenge. I think it's very important that the government hold fast on this, continue to hold the line, continue to say no exemptions, continue to push. But uh, it's, it's a challenge. I, I see the uh, head of the public service is out yesterday with a statement, Laurie Wanamaker, reminding all government workers, civil servants, provincial, that they took an oath 
to put the public interest ahead of their personal interest, and they too have to get vaccinated. Uh, She says uh, there's no question that vaccination is a public health issue. Vaccines are safe. Get vaccinated. So there's some fairly strong pressure going on this file here in British Columbia. And, um, you know, as I said, I hope the government holds the line on it, but it it will be a challenge if we start to get the kind of numbers that we're balking uh, that happened in Quebec. And let's talk about the other challenge right now for the government. That is all the pressure they're getting over this freedom of information fee that they have decided to charge. Cabinet Minister uh, Lisa Beer, boy, she really sure took a lot of criticism yesterday, didn't she? She did. Uh, You know, people are trying to figure out where this idea comes from because there was a consultation on this and there's been legislature committees looked at it and everything, and uh, no one's ever proposed a $25 fee for access to information. So, and, and the commissioner for information and privacy says he was consulted on the $25 fee. And he said, don't do it. It's a bad idea. Don't do it. Uh, so they did it anyway. So Bear got a press conference yesterday or media availability in the hallway. Where did this come from? And, oh, well, she said, you know, uh, the, the health authorities and the universities like the idea. I'm not surprised. We know health authorities are not crazy about answering questions about the data they have on hand. And, I think the universities should be ashamed of themselves if they support this, but apparently they do, according to the minister. Uh, But then we kind of look back a little bit, Simi, and um, I think there's a pretty strong clue Mm -hmm. as to where this came from, from Premier John Horgan. When he appointed Lisa Baer as minister back in December, Horgan complained at the time that the B.C. liberals were making way too much use of access to information requests For political reasons. Now, I know you and the listener will be shocked, Simi, that (laughs) a political party would request access to information for political reasons. This is... (laughs) But, you know, Horgan used to do that himself in opposition, right? But, you know, hypocrisy knows no bounds in politics. Anyway, I, I think that's a pretty strong clue as to where this idea came from of charging a fee because the New Democrats are saying the Liberals are making too much use of the law. And the $25 is really interesting. There is only one $25 fee for access to information in Canada, and it was brought in by the Conservatives in Alberta 25 years ago. So the New Democrats got their idea on this one from the Alberta Tories, who knew they listened to them on anything, but there you go. I, I And they, the fact that they keep trying to say that, oh, other jurisdictions do this one, clearly other jurisdictions do not. I mean, yeah. $25, that's an outlier fee. Yeah, it is. Uh, there was a $5 fee at the federal level, and the, the liberal opposition uh, didn't need a... They didn't need a freedom of information request to get this one out. They, they tracked down Cabinet Minister Murray Rankin when he was a federal MP for the NDP, criticized Ottawa for the $5 fee. He said it was a barrier, a barrier to access to information, which, of course, it is. And, and the other thing that's, you know, this is a government that, you know, is interested in equity issues. Um, a, a $25 fee is going to hit people of limited means and news organizations of limited means far more than it's going to hit the opposition liberal party because the liberals 
their requests are funded by the taxpayers through caucus research. So I don't think the $25 fee will even discourage the Liberals. But I believe it will discourage ordinary British Columbians, news organizations of limited means, from making access to information requests. And, you know, charities, all those groups out there that do have limited means, this fee is going to hit them. I don't think people fully realize that either, right? They may hear this story and think, oh, yeah, it's not a big deal. But it's stories that people like to read, and I know one of the examples that was used was from your paper, Vaughn, the Vancouver Sun. They do that, you do the public database of public sector salaries. That's yep. all through freedom of information. Yeah, and uh, Chad Skelton, who originated those stories with the Sun and who now teaches journalism, pointed out that that series is one of the most popular things we run every year and a lot of interest in who's the highest paid people in the public sector. He points out that with a $25 fee, um, it would cost the paper several thousand dollars in fees because each application is $25. So it would cost the newspaper several thousand dollars in fees to put that series together. I hope we will still do it. But again, there's other news organizations. If you want to go to every hospital in BC and find out, you know, what they're not telling us about COVID-19, for instance, or go to the universities, what are they not telling us? It's going to add up to a lot of fees. And I think it will discourage some applications for information uh, to share with the public. I find that a little too convenient, given that there's a lot of questions right now about the approach to COVID-19 and how decisions were made. And this is when they decide to change freedom of information? Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence, actually. But the minister says it's a modest fee. Simi and I say, minister, don't be so modest. (laughs) It was John Horgan's idea, and you got the $25 idea from the Alberta Conservatives. Fess up. We don't need, I say, you don't need a trail of breadcrumbs to trace this one down. The finger points right at John Horgan. This is his fee. He's the one who wants you to pay for access to information. We're going to be talking more about it. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This legislation hasn't been amended in over a decade, and this was a chance to put in a modest application fee. It's a modest fee, uh, a modest fee, a modest fee, a reasonable modest fee. Oh, that gets me every single time. That is the Citizen Services Minister, Lisa Barron. How many times yesterday she used the phrase, a modest fee, that was a, a Madagahi story on the news hour last night. Oh, yeah, she said it a lot. Modest fee, $25. But you know what the reaction that most people are having is? Well, it's very similar to what Gail wrote me about. Gail wrote and said, Simi, let me get this straight. John Horgan is going to charge me for information that I already own. It's public information. I'm a member of the public. So why would I be charged for it? Gail, you hit the nail on the head right there. That's exactly the case. And this modest fee of $25 is one that is really not charged anywhere other than in the province of Alberta. And in fact, British Columbia's privacy commissioner has said repeatedly that the provincial government, any provincial government, should not be charging a fee for filing requests under our freedom of information system. He believes, Michael McAvoy said, that this would make the government less accountable to the public. So what is going on here? Well, joining us now is Bruce Bandman, the BC Liberal MLA and official opposition critic for Citizen Services. Thank you for joining us this morning. <laughs> Thank you. And I love that clip myself. I- uh, thanks for playing that. Good morning. It's great to be on. I'm sure you heard that a lot yesterday, though. <laughs> modest fee, modest fee, modest fee. Yeah, yeah, I've heard it a few times. Yeah. 
Okay, how important um, is freedom of information? How important is that legislation? You know, um, I'm with the commissioner on this. Um, I believe that democracy needs lots of sunlight, lots of it. You know, trust is at an all-time low. And to make freedom of information requests more difficult to is just outrageous. Um, there are many groups, you know, you're, I would say for the press alone, I mean, quite often you are uh, the other, you know, opposition, so to speak. You, you can help keep government accountable. And this is not just $25. This is $25 to tell you whether or not the, how much the real charge is going to be, because if it's over three hours, you're going to get an even bigger bill. So, and if you go across ministries, which sometimes many items do, we could be talking about thousands of dollars per request. It's outrageous. That's that's true. Outrageous. A lot of people don't realize that is that you already pay. If they come back to you and say you're going to your request is required X number of pages, you have to pay for those pages, right? You pay the printing fee. You pay for the time. Uh, you pay for the time exactly. You pay for the hours that it takes to do it. Uh, Simi, I, I can't I can't even begin uh, to say where some of the problems are. So first, let's let's start with the commissioner. The commissioner uh, has not been consulted traditionally. The commissioner is, given the legislation, what do you think? They, they, they do a response in a letter. Uh, I've yet to see a letter from the commissioner with, with his position. The fact that the commissioner would feel so concerned to reach out to the public and the media should be a red flag that this needs to be put on hold, and it needs thorough and uh, thoughtful uh, deliberation. But, oh, no, this government just wants to ram this through. This is just one more way that John Horgan wants to hide and be secret from the public, and it's outrageous. Let's talk about, I know one of the criticisms has also been that, well, they just don't like the way the BC Liberals are, are using freedom of information. I mean, that, but the opposition does that, right? You must file a lot of freedom of information requests. Well, boo-hoo. That's part of democracy. <laughs> You know, boo-hoo. Oh, my goodness. We're causing them to do work. Uh, you know, that's, uh, they, they didn't mind doing it when it was the other way around. Um, it's needed, you know, and I know I'm making light of it. And usually FOIs, this is one of the most, you know, uh, I think it was Andrew Wilkinson, one of the driest subjects normally, until you start to realize that this has got some very dangerous precedents to be able to, to um restrict via money people's ability. What about a PAC team that wants to know whether or not uh, seismographic upgrades have been done in their schools or what it is? There's all kinds of reasons that groups and individuals, the press, the opposition need to be able to keep government accountable. It is part of the safety valve system of democracy and I am outraged, and the people in this province should be outraged that this government is trying to do this and ramrod it through without the commissioner taking a look at it and without thoughtful deliberation. This could have gone to committee, but it didn't. So what, what is, can be done, though, Bruce? What, what can happen next here? Is it just holding the government's feet to fire and hope that they change their mind? Uh, you know, that's about, all I, that's about all we can do. I would suggest to every citizen that's worried about democracy in this province Write your outrage to the premier. Um, you know, let's face it, they outnumber us almost two to one. Um, so basically, they can do whatever they want unless the press, unless the public 
hold them to account and say, wait, this is enough. You, you, are you kidding me? You, you, the, the privacy commissioner's got problems with this and you're still putting it through and you haven't allowed them to even look at it and consult and give you their report on it? It's outrageous. Is there, I, I, is there a chance, though, that you think that, that they could be made to back down that? I know people are outraged about this. Is this one of those things where you think they might have to do an about-face? Um, you know, I, I would say this to my colleagues, uh, to the government. Um, let's let's have a let's take a deep breath. Let's rethink this, and let's just hold off. I would encourage them to just have a thoughtful, sober second thought. Um, you know, sometimes things in the, in, you know, as you're trying to get stuff done and as the house is being, you know, trying to fill spots up in the house, um, things can, things can get ahead of themselves. This I think is clearly that case. Um, I would encourage people to reach out and contact your MLAs, especially the NDP MLAs and say, Hey, you know what? Uh, this is outrageous. Um, and it needs to stop. You need to, you need to wait and this should be tape, this should be put aside, hoisted is the technical term, and thoughtful deliberation put on this. It, right. It's being rushed. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Well, you're welcome, Simi, and you have a fantastic morning. You too. That's- no secret, there is a labor shortage out there. Companies are struggling to fill all the roles that they have open. It's hard to attract employees. So they're having to get creative in some ways. Well, does that mean that employers might now get creative about the hours that you work? For instance, what about a four-day work week? Is this something that we could be seeing more of in Canada? Well, let's talk more about that. Why would it be beneficial for some of these companies to try this out? Joining us now is Debbie Carreau, CEO and founder of Inspired HR and Inspired Workplace. Debbie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. Why do you think a four-day work week is a good idea? Well, there's so many different reasons why I think we need to explore it. I mean, first of all, from a personal perspective, you just said the labor shortage is one. Also, the data is starting to show us that people's health increases, there's economic value behind it, stress reduced, lowers the carbon footprint. Um, Even on equality, there's some real measures showing us data around equality in the workplace improves with a shorter work week. But is it something that workers or employers are going to want to do or they're going to end up doing it because they have to do it because that's how you attract employees? You know what, that's a really great question. I think it's a bit of both. Uh, The data that we're starting to see globally, because there's definitely a global movement towards this, is starting to show that productivity does not dip. In fact, it actually increases with a shorter work week. So that's one of the compelling reasons that businesses may actually buy into it. But yes, we're also seeing people are desperate for talent right now, and they will do almost anything that they need to to be able to differentiate themselves from their competitor down the street that's trying to hire the same people. Okay, so this is what you have to do to attract people then. But what do we know about productivity in a four-day work week? So there's been some interesting data, but Iceland did a big pilot from 2015 to 2018 with 2,500 workers, and they saw a moderate increase in productivity. And then in Japan, Microsoft did a pilot with a four-day work week, and they saw a 40% increase in productivity. So the early data shows that it's working really well. But it's not as easy, I think, as just cutting people's hours and saying, and just saying, okay, we'll be productive. I think you need to be strategic about it. And the other important thing is when people talk about a four-day work week, 
there's two different things. There's a compressed work week where people work four 10-hour days and right. all you're doing is jamming their work. Or there's what people are doing strategically and they're actually reducing the workers' number of hours. And then you need to manage by objectives and deliverables and just really make sure that you're looking at the work that people are doing to make sure they're staying productive. Right. And is that a harder, that second one though, is that a little bit harder for companies to embrace because it's that whole idea that am I going to pay people the same for not being here as much? You know, it really is challenging, um, especially for small businesses, I think, where margins are tight uh, and you just, everyone's got large, large workloads. It's easier in the public sector, I think, when you've got more employees to be more flexible around that. Um, But it's really going to come down to the data. And it is, it's harder to manage. I mean, quite frankly, between you and I is, it's easy to say, okay, well, let's manage by deliverables and make sure that we're watching everyone's work. It takes more work to watch productivity levels and make sure people are being productive. So it's not, it's not as easy as it sounds, mm-hmm. but I think in the long term, it'll actually help companies a lot because the other data we're seeing is people are taking less sick days, they're being more productive at work, they're not quitting their jobs as often. So if you're willing to play the long game, I actually believe that businesses will be better off with a, whether it is a four-day work week or just less hours in general, right. ultimately they will be better off. I thought things were really going to change though with the pandemic because so many companies learned that their employees are productive even working from home. I thought, oh, that's the end of the office. But that didn't happen though, Debbie. So I think I feel, yeah. are we still too optimistic about what employers are willing to do? Yeah, people, I mean, I think we know that humans are, we don't like change, right? And we, we like what's familiar. And so the easy thing is to call everyone back in the office. But what employers are also realizing is calling people back into the office, about a third of them are quitting and saying, uh, no, thank you. I'm going to go work somewhere else where I'm going to have that flexibility. So we're getting to a point where I actually think we're having a workplace revolution. The future of work is now. And if employers don't rise up to this, they're really going to find that they're going to have no good talent. People are going to walk. That is so have the option. Yeah, that is so true. All right, Debbie, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Denise. Always a pleasure. There was mostly good news, a little bit of bad news when it came to lifting the COVID-related capacity limits for BC restaurants, bars, and events yesterday. So proof of vaccination is going to be required, full vaccination, when this all becomes mandatory on October the 24th. What it means is that starting the 25th, capacity limits will end for indoor sporting events, indoor concerts, theatres, movie theatres, dance and symphony events, indoor organized events and gatherings like wedding receptions, parties, conferences, that kind of thing. But it doesn't mean that you can get up and dance if you're, you know, at a concert or something like that. So there are some things you still need to remember. But is this good news? Joining us now is Mo Tarmahamed, who's the owner of the Rickshaw Theatre. Mo, thanks for joining us. No worries, Sydney. Is it good news for you? On the surface, it's great news. Um, but I'll temper my enthusiasm until I read the final text of the PHO. What I found over the past year is what's said in news conference isn't always reflected on the final text of the uh, written order. So, yeah, it's great news, and, you know, you've already pointed out, you know, one of the concerns we have is about the dancing. <laughs> so, you know, what does that really right. mean? I mean, are you allowed to shuffle your feet? Are you allowed to sway <laughs> to the music? <laughs> so, you know, that's, it's, it's uh, you know, a little ridic- ridiculous, but uh, let's see what the final text says of the PHO, and mm-hmm. then we'll take it from there. Because for arts venues like your own, and I know we've spoken to somebody else this week about that, is the key is that people want to... If you- going to come and listen to live music, 
They want to move around. They want to dance. They want to have a good time, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm not reading Dr. Bonnie's mind here, but uh, I think the whole dancing notion is probably more um, geared towards nightclubs um, where, you know, people are facing each other. And it's, it's, it's probably the notion that, you know, you're, you're transmitting. If you're facing someone face-to-face and you're dancing, you know, that, that's probably the concern. I think during a live show like ours, you know, it's, it's pretty unidirectional. Everyone's looking at the stage and everyone's kind of moving around, bouncing around. Uh, so there isn't that sort of mingling as you would have if you were in a nightclub situation. So I think that's kind of the intent. But it's it's hard to watch a show just standing still. It, it just doesn't make any sense. And uh, and the other thing we don't even know is whether we're allowed to stand. Uh, you know whether we can sell GA tickets standing for shows. So there, there's still a lot of questions. You know I don't I don't want to uh, under, undermine the the importance of having full capacity, but uh, still a lot of questions. And then you know at the end of the day they just might leave it up to venues to decide what's the best way to you know um, address this. And that would that make it harder for you, though, than if you're saying, okay, well, we can have full capacity, but I'm going to have to ask you to not move around too much. Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, and like, like I said, I, I don't, I see the, the intent is having everyone at the venue um, fully vaccinated, um, which we've had five shows so far since mid-September. And, you know, we've been checking everyone's um, vaccination cards. And I'd say maybe other than a handful, everyone was fully vaccinated. So we're in a good place in, in Vancouver um, where everyone that's come to the rickshaw over the last month have been fully vaccinated. So you know, that, that's a check mark. Yeah, we've, we've done that. And everyone's been masked uh, unless they're drinking, of course. That's good, yeah. Um, so you know, we've, we've done this safely. We've proven we've done this safely. And we'll, we'll, we'll carry on doing things safely. We just need a bit more clarity about you know, what was said on the news conference yesterday. Right. How has business been, though, Mo? Like, are people still coming? Is there still that appetite there? There is a huge appetite. Uh, you know, we've been working under the 50 capacity uh, rule, and we've pretty much sold out every show at 50% capacity. That's great. It doesn't mean that we're making money. You, you know, it's, just, yeah. it's not, it's not um, sustainable at 50%. We're sort of barely breaking even. And, you know, thanks to uh, Creative BC with their Amplify BC funds and the federal government with their all their grants and subsidies, it, it's kept our doors open. But it's not something I'm sure the taxpayer keeps wanting funding as well. So um, we we want to be you know uh, run business on our own two feet, literally. And um, yeah, you I, feel I think like people would buy those way. tickets, we, right? Like if you were able to say, "Hey, it's back to normal, provided you're double vaccinated and yeah. you wear a mask, you can come in and watch a concert." And that's I think that's all you can really ask for. I mean, other jurisdictions, other places around the world. I mean, England, places in the states. That pretty much opened it up. They realized that they have enough uh, capacity in their hospitals in case there are any breakthrough cases for the fully vaccinated people. And I think we have capacity as well. And I think the uh, health uh, minister has also realized that we're at a place now, yes, we will get some people who will get the virus, but nothing to the extent if they were unvaccinated. All right. So when, so generally it takes a little while, right, for the actual order to be posted. Is that what you're waiting for? You want to read that fine print? Yeah. You know, I hope it doesn't take as long as sometimes it uh, has in the past. Um, But like I said, I think, um, I think the health authorities realize that venues like ours uh, have done things properly and they will leave it up to us to make sure that we do things safely. They may not give us complete guidance, 
but we may just have to make things up on our own as long as we're you know meeting the sort of the right. intent of the order. So, well, what do people want to do these days? Are they are they game for anything? Is there any kind of live show? <laughs> they just want to check it out. Uh, I partially. I mean, you know, we've we've been doing local bands, so a lot of family and friends have been showing up to support uh, artists and. A lot of people have been supporting the venue, uh, you know, not just the rickshaw, but other venues as well throughout the pandemic. You know, our merch sales have grown you know, three, four times what they normally are. And, you know, we've been doing a whole bunch of live streams over the past year. So there's a huge appetite. People just want to be in a room, um, if not full of people, at least with a lot of people uh, to watch a show. Because that's, that's the whole experience of seeing a live show. It's not you know, on your screen. Um, it's just being with people. And uh, it's a shared experience that we just, we're just uh, intrigued to get along. All right. Well, listen, Mo, good luck and thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no worries. Well, we are talking about Waste Reduction Week. And there's a lot more to waste reduction than just, you know, recycling. Some people are doing even more than that. Local filmmakers actually crowdfunded a documentary about what they call sustainability heroes in BC. And she shared some waste-reducing tips with our Raji Sohal joins us now this morning. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. I feel like the whole uh, sustainability movement got a little bit halted in the 90s and lots of people stayed stuck there where they just thought, hey, I recycle and that's enough. But so many people are doing so much more. And a lot of people are waking up to the fact that, and it's a fact, that uh, to reduce our carbon footprint, we have to look to food waste. We're wasting so much food. 58% of food is wasted in Canada. Apparently that's worth $49 billion per year. And that means that if waste were a country, it would be the third largest CO2 emitter after USA and China. (laughs) So that kind of just shocked me. And that's not just you and me forgetting about the cauliflower at the back of our fridge and having to throw it out at the end of the week. It means uh, grocery stores are wasting food, restaurants are, and farmers are. I think a lot of people don't realize that companies and farmers and everybody that is not connected to the consumer, that is not a consumer, um, responds to consumers. And so even at the farm, like 30 to 40% of what actually ends up um, growing in farms doesn't actually make it out of the farm because they are responding. Farmers are responding to very um, specific requirements of food. Like it has to be perfect. It has to be a certain size. And that all trickles back to the consumer and us. And so I think one of the staggering statistics is, is how much doesn't even make it out of the farm because they know it won't be sold. And so that's, that's an, unfortunate, an unfortunate reality, as well as in retail. You know, they have to keep everything so perfect and beautiful and they often overstock items to make it, you know, visually pleasing. And so, so much of that is perishable that doesn't end up um, getting sold. That's Vivian Davidson. She's a Vancouver and she's actually making a movie about this. It's called Food Synergy and it follows uh, seven positive stories from local heroes, she calls them, in sustainability. People who uh, are entrepreneurs, um, people who are farmers who are doing really interesting, cool things. And there's a story that she's working on in that film about a chef here. He's at a, a big hotel, JW Marriott, and he designs his menu around eliminating food waste. And we all know that hotels are huge wasters of food, but not this one. So whatever doesn't get used gets used eventually, whereas other places would throw that out. Then there's a story of a zero packaging grocery store. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Nada. And the owner there, um, she has 
everything, the dairy, shampoo, candy, you name it, without packaging, and everything's bulk and weighed. And I thought Vivian would have some useful tips for us. Uh, you know, yesterday we had an online grocery store on. They uh, ask farmers to give them produce that's not fit for the grocery store because of how it looks. So it's still just as good for you. It's still got all the same nutrition, but it may appear uh, to be different. And they call it imperfect fruit. It's either the size isn't um, what people would consider a good size or it it's like the ugly fruit, ugly produce. We've all heard of that. You know, a carrot that has a little bit of a bump or a peach that's not completely homogeneously, you know, beautifully orange, like it has some spots, maybe an apple that, you know, has a little spot somewhere or, you know, so even something that isn't, well, for lack of a better word, perfect. What should happen with that stuff instead? It should make its way to the market. People should buy it. People should not have so um, stringent requirements of what they think is a good, is a good food. We should really change our behaviors in terms of how we consume and what we consume and respond to the need of eating everything. Now, I like that idea, Roger. I tend to freeze all that kind of stuff, right? If there's something imperfect, I just, I'll be like, okay, well, that's obviously not going to be eaten right now. Chop it up, freeze it. Okay, so that's fantastic. Vivian says go a step further. When she says eat everything, oh, she really means it. So, I mean, ideally, we would be creative at home. We would only shop for what we need and consume it all. And even the scraps is a wonderful book, um, Cooking with Scraps by um, Lindsay Jean Hart. And she she invites people to be creative at home and using all parts of the fruit. So ideally, we wouldn't have to compost. Oh, I like this. That's, that's a big challenge, though. It is. Simi, she wants people to eat the banana peel. She's saying, cut it up. Like the Nigella Lawson smoothie. thing? Yes. <laughs> she says, you know, the top of carrots? So I use that in broth, like I'll cut off the green part. She says, make pesto out of it. There's recipes online for that. And she says like watermelon rind is high in potassium. Pop it in your smoothie. It'll be fine. So this is, a you know, this is for a lot of people, a whole movement. People are getting creative around that. I know. If people are wondering what the heck I was just talking about, there is this recipe that Nigel Lawson put out there for a banana peel curry and I was very skeptical, but people have been calling it like the zero waste banana peel curry. And I don't think I would ever try it, but it certainly seems to be popular out there. Oh, I'm ready to try it. So after she gave me these tips, I ate a kiwi hole for the first time. And I totally was not put off by the texture of the outside. And apparently we can do that. We can eat a whole kiwi. So I think it's the, what she was pointing out is that we need to be more inventive, more creative, think outside of the box around food and food waste. And, you know, even just, I mean, a number of years ago, I would have thrown the stock out from um, broccoli or cauliflower. No. Whereas now, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> My mom <laughs> would kill me if she knew that. What? But then I, you know, one day was watching her cook and I thought, oh gosh, she uses all of it. Yes. So I really should too. And so now I do. Chop it up fine. That's What do you think cauliflower rice is made out of? It's not just well, the cauliflower florets. Yes, now I know. <laughs> <laughs> so many lessons for us to learn. Rachi, thank you. Thanks, Simi.